Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40. We're going to look at verse 6 through 8 in particular, but I'd like to start back at verse 1. I didn't prepare in advance to look at what page number that was. I'm sorry. 712. There it is. Sorry, Willie. Let us read from the Word of God, and then I will open with a word of prayer before I begin our message. So here now, friends, brothers and sisters, the Word of God. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare a way of the Lord, or prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken." A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. This is the good word of God. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, in many times and in many ways you have spoken to us through the prophets of old, like Isaiah. But in these last days you have spoken to us through your Son, Jesus Christ, who is the radiant glory and the exact imprint of your image, O God. And may we, as we attend to your word, ancient and true, this morning, that we would see Christ in your word, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see what your word says and understand what it means, that it would pierce our souls, and that we would trust your word with all of our heart. Because you, O God, are the everlasting God, whose Glory knows no bounds. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, who is the Word incarnate. Amen. Recorded throughout the Old Testament, the history of God's people is a speckled one in the Promised Land. It's really rather tragic, too. To say nothing of the period of Judges, which would take us a lot of time to talk about, Uh, But more specifically, in the era of the the divided kingdom, 
after David and Solomon, his son, there is a cycle of king after king after king who did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Save a few exceptions like Uzziah, or as we'll see later, Hezekiah, though there is some spottedness to their own legacies as well. The legacy of David's dynasty until Jesus came to reclaim the throne and is still on that throne today is one of idolatry, violence, even child sacrifice, like Manasseh, who, according to tradition, in his reign after Hezekiah, his father, sawed Isaiah in half as a martyr. These kings were proud and fixated on their own glory. And when threatened by enemies, they were tempted to trust in the surrounding nations like Egypt or Syria for support. They sought to trust in their own horses and their own armies, their own might, their own wealth, rather than trusting in the Lord. And although God endured the wickedness of Judah and her kings for centuries, Isaiah and other, others prophesied God's just judgment on her for breaking covenant with the Lord. Isaiah served as a prophet for over 40 years and four kings in Judah and delivered prophecies from God of both judgment and blessing. For the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, God pronounces judgment after judgment on all the nations of the ancient Near East, from powerful Egypt to mighty Assyria. And among those being judged is also Judah and Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom. In Isaiah 39, a historical incident is recorded of a uh, rather difficult moment for King Hezekiah, a fallen moment for King Hezekiah. And this is an incident. Hezekiah gave the Babylonians a little sneak peek at the treasures of Judah and in the temple. Isaiah then tells Hezekiah after this incident that these same Babylonians, these Babylonians will one day come and take all those treasures away to Babylon. He said, nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and some of your own sons will come from you whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. This finds its fulfillment when Nebuchadnezzar, that infamous king, came and destroyed Jerusalem and the rest of Judah and carried off into exile a fraction of the people. From Isaiah 40 to the end, there is a turning point in his collection of prophecies over this uh, decades-long ministry. God shifts the focus of Isaiah's prophecies from one of judgment, judge them until there's nothing left, he says in chapter 6, till they're deaf, until they're blind, till they're dull in their hearts, but he shifts that in chapter 40. God proclaims promises of deliverance and comfort for those who will be carried off into the Babylonian exile by his just wrath. When the world seemed to be going to pieces and there seemed to like no hope at all for God's people, Isaiah called the pre-exilic Jews to trust in God and to an extent those exiled Jews to trust in God's deliverance. Even when looking toward the suffering of the future exiles, God gives a message of comfort, good news, that he will deliver his people and restore them back to the promised land. 
So at the turning point of chapter 40, God issues a call of comfort for his people and for his messengers to speak tenderly to Jerusalem. There should be no doubt about God's ability and desire to deliver his people. Man is weak and liable to just judgment. But God is almighty and accomplishes all that he says he will accomplish. For us, nearly 3,000 years later, these prophecies were delivered. God's word still stands forever. Amen? Who are, uh, we are who uh, Peter calls the elect exiles. And so we are waiting for our king to return and vanquish his enemies, as we heard in last week's sermon. God promises comfort to us as we wait for our future and final deliverance from sin and death. It is God and his word that we depend upon today and not human power or wisdom. So there are three truths about God and man that we must know and remember from this passage in Isaiah. One, all flesh is grass. Two, God's word stands forever. Three, it's still forever. As we read Isaiah, one of the important aspects of his writing that we need to remember is that he was a highly skilled poet preacher. In verses 6 through 8, Isaiah uses figurative language of both simile and metaphor to illustrate the characteristics of mankind. Uh, And then he compares and contrasts that with God and his attributes, namely his word. God commands Isaiah to directly compare all flesh, which is mankind, human beings, you and me, and even the people that he's speaking to, compare them to grass. And when the grass is well watered, as we've had for the last few days this past week, even though it's a little chilly, when it's well watered, it's lush, it's vibrant, it's beautiful. Additionally, Isaiah is instructed to tell how the beauty of mankind is like the flower of the field. Now, Nina loves wildflowers. I'll put her on the spot for a second. And sometimes when I'm out walking, I'll pick her some Queen Anne's lace to showcase in a vase. And likewise, there are similar traits between what is beautiful in mankind with what is beautiful in these wildflowers that we like to display in our home. The Hebrew word that Isaiah uses in the ESV translation of beauty is, I'm going to botch this Hebrew pronunciation, chesed. Did I get that right, any Hebrew speakers? I don't know. This word can be translated in a number of ways, such as goodness, kindness, or faithfulness. And often in the Old Testament, it's applied to God's love as a steadfast love, a faithful love toward his people, a covenant love that he has with his people. And John Calvin comments on that term, uh, saying that it denotes all that is naturally most highly valued among men and all that is excellent and worthy of applause among men is the absolute kindness of God. So what is beautiful and valuable to mankind is also a gracious gift from God, in other words. These beautiful flowers of humanity is a gift from God. We can easily observe this flourishing beauty of mankind like the grass and the flowers. We have great works of literature from the pen of Shakespeare. We have visually enchanting artwork like Monet's water lilies. The mesmerizing music of Bach 
and even the amazing feats of civil engineering. Have you ever driven across the Mackinac Bridge? Oh, man, it's terrifying going over the Great Lakes. It really is. And we went up there a few years ago. Uh, but even still, this design of the suspension bridge is incredible. Just the way that it's made. It goes way beyond my understanding. I don't know how all of that works to make it stand for so long. It's incredible what humans can do with these minds that God has given us. And God has graciously, graciously given mankind all of these valuable qualities and abilities and provisions. But what happens to the grass and wildflowers in the summer heat or the winter frost as we're anticipating soon? The grass withers, the flower fades. They're easily dried up by a lack of rain and from the heat. They wither and fade at the end of the season. Grass is temporary and frail. The wildflowers in Nina's vase barely last a week or two, if she's good about taking care of it. Surely, the people are grass. We are reminded by God through his prophet Isaiah that all the prosperity and vibrancy of humanity is fleeting. How often do we think when we are young that we have all the time in the world to pursue our goals later? How often do we think death is just a far-off matter, something to worry about when we're old? If you've been paying attention to the news lately, as Phil had prayed for earlier, the frailty of human, human life may be at the forefront of your minds right now. Hamas has ruthlessly slaughtered women and children and Israel, and are prepared to use human shields to protect their own interests. How easy is it to take a life with the squeeze of a trigger or the push of a button? Human life is so fragile. We can easily get sick. We could die rapidly. The strength of our years fail suddenly. I remember my grandmother had Parkinson's for as long as I could remember. And she always gave these shaky, spasmodic hugs that I can still feel when I think about her. And near the end of her life, she could barely speak, she could barely move, and on her last birthday before she died, I can still remember the last words she ever said to me. Nina and I were only engaged at that time, and she hoarsely whispered to us, I have a new granddaughter. And that just, I, just a beautiful a statement that has just rung tr uh, clearly in my mind and heart for years. And she died at 68 just a few months before our wedding. And she was, I mean, in the large scheme of things, fairly young. Her radiant and loving presence was painfully missed at our wedding occasion. And I think as we sit here and contemplate that truth, we all have people in our lives that seem to us like radiant and beautiful flowers, refreshing grass, who have withered out of our lives after they've died. How quickly, we recall David Van Weeren was diagnosed with this lung cancer just a year ago this month. And how quickly, by Christmas, he had succumbed to this devastating disease. And in the last few years alone, 
This congregation has lost so many loved ones. Beloved brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, husbands and wives, sons and daughters. This point of withering grass can hardly be missed, can it? I don't think I need to draw that out too terribly much for us to recognize how fleeting life really is. Jesus, the brother of James, said so clearly in his letter to the church, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So going back to Isaiah's context, seeing the upheaval of their world as major world powers played cat and mouse around the ancient Near East, Isaiah's original audience would have been painfully aware of their frailty and weakness in the presence of Assyria and Egypt and later Babylon. And even more so, the exiles to whom this prophecy reached less than 200 years later would have felt their withered strength and lives in captivity far away from home. They were afflicted by Assyria in Hezekiah's day at the time of this prophecy, and they were later crushed by Babylon in the days of great Nebuchadnezzar. Mankind has splendor and glory and their power and wealth in their accomplishments and empires. We build towers. We write masterpieces. We establish legacies. We philosophize. But like the wildflowers at the first frost, all that we prize and value in humanity, which is a gift from God that we take for granted, fades. Going back to John Calvin, he comments that the beauty and luster quickly vanish away and pass away so that all that is uh, sorry so that it is useless for them those who hold to those things and trust in those things to flatter or applause themselves on account of this idle and deceitful splendor it's worthless it goes away it passes away what can man do or say that won't pass out of potency or memory this was not only what filled the Judeans with dread of the nations, but was also a temptation in and of itself to trust in these splendors and these glories, this strength, their own strength, their own power, or the power and strength of someone else. One of my favorite poems, one of my favorite poems of all time, illustrates this fleeting glory so well. In 1818, Percy Bysshe Shelley, the husband of Mary Shelley who wrote Frankenstein, published a poem called Ozymandias. In it, the speaker of the poem meets a traveler who tells him about a busted-up statue he once saw in the desert. All that remained of this statue were two large legs and a broken, sneering face in the sand. So the final stanza of this poem says this, My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look upon my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. The name of this king, Ozymandias, is apparently the Greek name for Pharaoh Ramses II, reigning over Egypt from 1279 to 1213 B.C. 
And what's left of this proud and mighty king's empire? Sand, as far as the eye can see, and a world that has long forgotten any of his mighty works. The strength and might of Assyria filled the nations with dread in Isaiah's day. But how many here today know anything about Sennacherib? Maybe a few of you. Where is the Assyrian Empire now? To the Judean exiles in Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar was king over a glorious empire. And you remember how he threw a few Jewish men into a fiery furnace for not worshiping a golden statue of himself. Jared preached on this a few years ago. That didn't work out like he expected, did it? And after a period of humiliation inflicted on Nebuchadnezzar by the Lord, he said this in Daniel 4. Now I praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. To the Judeans, Isaiah is condemning any trust in what is glorious or beautiful about mankind. Don't put your trust in Sennacherib or Egypt, Judah. Behold, the nations are like a drop in the bucket. Don't trust in your treasures or your own army, Hezekiah. Babylon will carry the, it all away from a smoldering Jerusalem. Don't find your comfort in mankind, wonderful and awesome as it may seem to be. Even the great American empire is a drop in a bucket. Because the grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. In contrast to the withering grass and fading flower that, the, that is mankind, God's very word is everlasting. God's word stands forever. The writer of Psalm 119 said this, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. At every turn of the page in Scripture, it is God who speaks, not merely man. Isaiah records in verse 6, a voice says, cry. So first, Isaiah indicates that the voice of God commands him to cry out with boldness and clearness. Whatever the prophets say, we can have reverent confidence that it is God himself who has spoken because they speak on God's behalf whatever he has commanded them to say. I, standing here, preaching from the very word of God, am commanded to cry what God has commanded to be preached to you. I do not speak on my own authority. I speak from the authority of the sacred word of God. And I speak with clarity and boldness, or at least I pray that I do, not shrinking from man, but teaching the whole counsel of God, faithfully, lest blood be upon my own head. Jesus says in John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Do you recognize the voice of God in these ancient words? Second, at the beginning of this passage, because Isaiah responded, by asking, what shall I cry? We must remember that the prophets didn't just spew whatever ideas they wanted. All scripture is breathed out by God. 
And it's not just the musing of ancient authors. Calvin best states of Isaiah here that he does not break forth at random and boast of what he appeared to have heard, but received clear and undoubted instruction after having waited for it with composure. Though these words of prophecy in Isaiah are written in in his own human style, his words are more than just the mere words of man. They are the very words of God, and God's word stands forever. That's a charge to any person that stands in the pulpit today. And that is something that I see happening all the time. Let me just ramble off my musings. God spoke to me. Did he? Where's your Bible? He has spoken strongly and clearly through his authorized messengers. So in the context of this prophecy, God's word is fixed forever in two distinct ways. Not just all of the word of God, which it does include, but in two distinct ways here. It's fixed in his judgments and it's fixed in his blessings. It is the very word of God that fills his just wrath, or fulfills his just wrath and judgment. The grass and the flowers of mankind are quickly destroyed when God breathes on them. He merely needs to blow like the hot east wind and empires come crumbling down. When God decrees judgment, it is sure to be accomplished. God pronounced such a judgment on Judah in Isaiah 39 and elsewhere. He declared that they would be carried off into exile, which came to pass only just a few centuries later. Judah received from the, Lord, from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. That's an exact match in punishment for her sins. They got exactly what they deserved, in other words. In light of Judah's own impending exile, Isaiah proclaims to the future exiles that not even the might and power of the Babylonians will last forever. God's judgment will come upon them just as easily as it did on Jerusalem. Throughout the book of Isaiah, he records prophecy after prophecy of God's judgment on all the surrounding nations in the 8th century B.C. In Isaiah 19, for example, he delivers an oracle concerning Egypt, Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt, and the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. Why are these nations being judged? It's for idolatry. It's for their wickedness. There is only one God, and that is obvious to the whole world. It is the Lord who created and calls the stars out of the heavens. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? On the day of the Lord, no one will be without an excuse, or no one will have an excuse, but we will all be held accountable to God. God is worthy of all worship and honor. And praise, but mankind has chosen to rebel against him. Why does the grass wither? Why does the flower fade? It's because we are all under God's judgment against sin. Death is the consequence for sin. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die, he says in Genesis 2, to the first man 
as our representative in the Garden of Eden. And his failure was our failure. And today, we also have our own personal failures that we are held accountable to. We are all under the curse of death for sin. It wasn't part of the beginning. It entered as God's curse and judgment on sin. And that's why we still die today. When God breathes his word of judgment on us and his spirit is at work in us, he awakens our senses to the fact that we are nothing. Deserving death, and we deserve worse. Without this awareness of sin and the judgment that we deserve, we will not be able to accept the comfort he promises in Isaiah 40. And that was just as true to the original audience. They needed to be brought low in order to recognize their need for the comfort and the glory of God's comforting message. We need to understand and accept the bad news of God's wrath against sin before we can understand or accept the good news of God's deliverance for sinners. Even as we are brought low by God's judgment and a reminder that all flesh is grass, can we have any hope? Calvin says the only consolation for us that we may be raised up by the word of God or the word of the Lord as by his outstretched hand is that we are frail and fading but that the word of the Lord is durable and eternal and in a word that the life which we need is offered to us from another quarter, from another place. It comes from above, not from within. Where else can we turn, in other words, when we realize our own strength fails and when we are brought to nothing? It is in the darkness at rock bottom that the love of God in his word shines brilliantly. How many of us can make anything happen long-lastingly? Let us recognize that, that it is God who stands forever in his word. God's judgments are fixed in his very word, and so are his promises and blessings when he proclaims them to us. At the turn of chapter 40 in Isaiah, God promises deliverance to the future exiles from their mighty captors. The reason they are given by Isaiah to have confidence in this promised deliverance is that the word of the Lord will stand forever. When God decrees comfort, blessing, and good news, he is sure to accomplish it. Should we be surprised then that these exiles did in fact return to their homeland? The future exiles are given confidence that the everlasting God loves them and keeps his word. So how can we be sure, except for this incident, that God will keep his word? Whereas the strength and glory of mighty nations are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness, behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. He cannot be compared to lifeless idols crafted by human hands because the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. God accomplishes his word by his own omnipotent might, decreed by his own omniscient wisdom. God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. He has said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken And will he not fulfill it? Friends, if you have been brought low by the word of God, 
put your confidence in the same unchangeable, good, and omnipotent God of all creation. His promise is sure and true because his steadfast love endures forever. God proclaims comfort and care for his beloved people, and though his disciples or his discipline is hard and painful, his love is tender and gentle like a shepherd. In verse 11 of Isaiah 40, God is characterized as a loving and intimate God. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead his people back home from their captivity in Babylon. He gently leads those who are with young. Does this remind you of anyone? His promise reaches far beyond just this initial prophecy. God's word promised comfort to the Jews in Isaiah's day as they looked toward their judgment and exile, but also their future return. The word, or sorry, the world of that generation was dark. It was grim. It was populated by a lost generation that had abandoned the Lord. But Isaiah was commanded to point the people to God for their future salvation and redemption. And this promise reached the Jews of the first century AD under the oppressive Roman Empire. But it was not a deliverance from Rome that God had promised. No. In Peter's first letter to the church, he quotes Isaiah 40, verse 6 through 8. In chapter 1, verse 23 through 25. And this helps us understand the extent of this promise that God has given. It says, This is the good news that was preached to you, this word that will last forever. Brothers and sisters, the good word was preached to you. The word of God, which stands forever, is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good shepherd. We are held captive by sin, and we are under the curse of death. We deserve all the judgment and wrath God poured out on Judah and more. We are brought low by the word of God who makes us aware of our sin and his holy presence. But Christ Jesus, the comforter of true Israel, his church today, paid back double, an exact match for our sins to the holy God against the holy God. He did this by what Paul quotes in Colossians 2:14 by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. It's paid for in full. By the finished work of Christ who stood in our place under God's judgment, we are led out of captivity from sin and death. By the living and abiding word of God, Peter says, we have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. We may be fragile grass, and our flower fails to last in our own strength, but God has planted his word in our hearts. By his word, he will sustain his people for all eternity. In Christ, we are trees planted by streams of water yielding its fruit in the Spirit, which is at work in our hearts. We have, our leaf will not wither, it will not fade, it will not die, if we are in Christ, who sustains us for all eternity. We have 
and eternal deliverance of our souls through the good shepherd whose word we recognize and whose word stands forever. So, let us remember, it's still forever. It's still forever. What does this mean for us today? Well, God's word stands forever. We have to ask ourselves this rhetorical question. Is it still forever? Absolutely. Absolutely it is still forever. Then God's word, if that's true, is still the highest authority in the land. Sola Scriptura is the reformed understanding that God's word, not man's word, is the final authority. Man is weak and can't even make one hair turn white or black. And whatever man says, even in terms of the gospel, must be checked against the word of God. Check me now against the word of God. I don't stand on my own authority. I stand on the authority of God's word preaching to you today, crying boldly and clearly what God has laid down in his holy word. Paul makes this point perfectly clear in Galatians 1 in a very strong rebuke. If we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. How often do we hear false gospels today? How often do we call them out as accursed by God for preaching what is contrary to the gospel? What leads men to death, not life? God, help us. Many people today, like to even in our own little spheres, if we're not out in a pulpit doing this in a grand scheme, we like to tweak, we like to add to, we like to trump, we like to revoke the word of God by claiming authority not that's not of our own, but claiming authority over it. They say, the spirit moves in new ways, whatever that's supposed to mean. Contra- contradicting God's word already. Does that make God a liar? It would if that were true. They may say, that's, that's just how God works. No, that's a lie. That is from Satan. And scripture, as Jesus says, cannot be broken. Period. So whatever opinions we, may, we hold must be checked against the word of God, even our own ideas. I love this quote from Spurgeon. You might have heard this before. He said, the word of God is the anvil upon which the opinions of man are smashed. I like pounding things and being dramatic. So, keep that in mind, my friends. We cannot say that we just disagree with Paul. God is love. Stop trying to weaponize Jesus against other people. What God has spoken is law. It is fixed. And and whether you agree with his word or not, it's the final authority. It's not up to you to decide. It's not up to me to decide if God's word is true. It is. And all of our thoughts and opinions must be checked against this anvil. If it's not from God, it's gone. Friedrich Nietzsche had some crazy ideas. His philosophy is gone. He turned into a crazy man. God is dead. I don't think so. God's word is the final authority. We're not at liberty to twist the scriptures or assert whatever opinions we want. And if we have opinions that don't align with God's word, we must change, not God's word. We must change, not God's word. If I can repeat that a second time for dramatic effect. 
using that Hebrew strategy of raising something to a new degree. Man's word and opinions are constantly changing, but God's word is forever. I have no idea which way to take home from school tomorrow, coming eastbound on the highway, because they keep changing the date that they're going to close all these exits. It said the 5th, then the 6th, now the 16th, and then they change it to the 17th. I have no idea. And they've closed all of the exits down the road. I don't know if I'm supposed to get off at Torrance or just take 159th all the way. Man's opinion changes. Man's word changes. It's fleeting. It's untrustworthy. But God is unchanging. That's what his name means. I am the Lord. I am who I am. I change not. Relative truth is no truth at all. It's a fool's errand. God's word is trustworthy and unchanging because God himself is trustworthy and unchanging. For the reformers in the 16th century, sola scriptura was, the in was instrumental to the Reformation movement. And the Roman Catholic Church, uh, they do believe that the Bible is the word of God, but that they also consider the Pope holds the keys to heaven and the Pope's word is final. He trumps God's word when there's a disagreement or when he wants to say something and get his own way. He is said to speak on God's behalf, but Martin Luther famously said when he was on trial, unless I'm convinced by sacred scripture or evident reason, I cannot recant. It is neither right nor safe to go against my conscience, and my conscience is held captive by the word of God, is what he said. Here I stand. God help me. What a bold thing to say in front of people who are ready to kill him. Are you prepared to say something like that in the face of a world that hates you for standing on God's word and says it's a bunch of lies and hate-mongering? Are you willing to stand here convinced and convicted by this truth? To stand firm in the face of a furnace and say, I will not bow down to that golden statue. I will not bow down to the God of self. I bow down to the God who created everything, including me. Check my words against scriptures. See if they're true too. You, could check, you need to check all the pulpits, all the councils, all the testimonies against the eternal word of God because our worship and our theology must be drawn out of scripture and not imposed on it as so many are doing today. And in this increasingly post-Christian world, we must remember that we are sojourners and exiles waiting for our full deliverance in Christ's return. The nations will be judged. We must not depend on them for our deliverance, not even the United States. This is not God's promised land for you and for me. We listen to political commentators, but are you going to put their words and their solutions over and against the word of God? Do you spend more time listening to Rush Limbaugh or whoever else is on the radio or on TV more than you listen to the very words of God? We can't just listen to these political commentators on the state of affairs in this decaying world. We have to listen to the word of God. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are grasshoppers, Isaiah says, later in this chapter. Your citizenship in the United States is temporary. But your heavenly citizenship is eternal. It's kept and guarded by God himself. Christ will return in his own timing, not ours. Stop trying to figure it out. It's not for us to figure out. 
He will come back to reclaim his bride in his own time. You and I need to master the scriptures and our own studies. We need to be confident and assured of our salvation in Christ by knowing and remembering his promises. How much time do you spend steeping in the word of God? How much time do you spend reflecting on God's eternal word? We need to be renewed in our hearts and minds by pouring over his word night and day, meditating on his law day and night. Then you will have a life like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so. They are like chaff, David says in Psalm 1. God says in Psalm 1. Lastly, I will repeat this point. Stand firm on God's word in this world that hates you, dear exiles and brothers and sisters. The opinions of man will rage against God, his word, and his people, and our own strength may fail. Men and women have died to give you an English translation of the Bible because the world hates the truth. They suppress it. But you can be confident and convicted on all matters of life and godliness because the God who rules with his own might has spoken. Comfort. Comfort, my people, says your God. Isaiah anticipated Israel's exile as punishment for breaking covenant with God. But even looking toward the suffering of the future exiles, God gave a message of comfort, good news, that he would deliver his people and restore them. God is as good as his word. And there should be no doubt in our minds about God's ability and desire to deliver his people even now today. If you are sitting here wrestling with sin, brought low by the word of God, convicted of your sin, you can have confidence that in the blood of Christ you stand forgiven and clothed in his righteousness. He has delivered us from captivity to sin and death. So look to Christ who promised to return again to finally and fully reclaim all that is his. Stand firm on the word of God in all your heart and mind. God's word stands forever. Let's pray. Almighty God in heaven, who rules with a mighty arm, who considers the nations to be as nothing, a mere drop in the bucket, princes are nothing and emptiness before you. Our words, our opinions, they're worthless. They burn up in the presence of your holy word. And I pray today that we would stand convicted of your word, stand steadfast and firm in your word, and that you would comfort those who are afflicted by their guilt, and that you would afflict those who are comfortable in their guilt. And may your word reach our hearts as the imperishable seed and return to you not void but a hundredfold and increase. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.